Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis into all the subjects you're talking about in football. I mean, McGarry with me as always is the guru, Mr. Duncan Castles. Today we bring you one, two, three United's Leeds, Newcastle, Manchester, as well as some Manchester City, as well as Barcelona, and of course, Hero and Villain, as it is the first pod of the week. However, we're going to start with uh, Ellen Road Duncan. And uh, there has been some conjecture regarding the future of Marcelo Bielsa, uh, both last season and this, in terms of his long-term plans and whether or not he will stay at the club that he obviously got promoted. And you have some information regarding what's on the table in terms of the next step of the project for owner Andrea Radrazzani. Yeah, um, look, this is something that's going to have to change at Leeds United at some point. Um, They know Marcelo Bielsa won't continue as manager indefinitely. He had to be persuaded to stay on for this first season back in the Premier League, that that contract, one-year extension only being announced in September, uh, two months after they secured promotion to the Premier League after such a long wait um, and secured it convincingly as champions playing some very uh, endearing and uh, exciting football. Um, They have gone through this season in the knowledge that they might not be able to persuade Bielsa to do a fourth campaign as Leeds United manager. And as you would expect from a club that's very ambitious in its uh, long-term goals and an owner who's very ambitious in what he wants from the football team, they have a strategy in place and they've had a strategy in place for some time um, to look for a replacement and to get the best possible replacement in should they need to hire him. Now, Rad Rosani has gone public recently saying that the job is Bielsa's to continue should he want to and they're waiting for a decision on uh, on that from Bielsa. And Bielsa also spoke last month um, saying if the club needs an answer before the end of the season, I will respond before the end of the season. But if this happens, I will take the time to tell them that they should consider what happens in the last part of the season. Um, so he's basically saying, wait and let's see how this campaign finishes. And I'd prefer to to make a decision then, which gives you a sense of the uncertainty that that's Leeds have got to deal with. They are extremely ambitious in their plans um, for the club. Radrazani's talked about how he wants to establish Leeds as the Premier League's seventh force um, by 2025. So basically have them on the, the tail of the of the, the traditional big six um, to the extent that they are still the big six in the Premier League given this season's results. And by doing so, massively increasing the valuation of the club to what he says he hopes to get it to in the region of 600 million to a billion pounds, um, which is way, way above um, where they were when he bought the club. And I think far above what the, the market valuation would be were he to sell the club in its entirety at present. Um, 
part of that strategy obviously has been to keep Leeds in the division um, they see this season as one of consolidation and also next season as one of cons- consolidation um, so ensure that they are secure within the Premier League and then in the third season to go quite aggressively into the market and build a squad that can be competitive towards the top end, start competing for European football, playing the kind of front foot football they are doing at the moment. Obviously, um, what Bielsa has done has worked for them. It's very popular as a fan. So when they're looking for a coach, they'd like someone who can do the majority of what Bielsa has done, sort of take, let's say, 80% of what Bielsa has developed at the club and move that on to another level, keep the good parts, add some additional parts and move towards what Radrazani wants down the line. Um, interesting information I have is that th- their preference, should they have to replace Bielsa this summer, is to get one of the top coaches in European football. And they don't want a, a, a staging um, candidate. They want to go to the top of the market and try and get someone you probably wouldn't associate with a club who are you know currently mid-table in the Premier League as being a candidate. And the information I have is that they have made an approach to Max Allegri um, how to work for over a year now since leaving Juventus um, after winning five straight Serie A titles there, taking them to two Champions League finals. Um, but available um, without compensation and I and I think that gives you a sense of where Radrazani thinks he can um, get the club and the kind of managers he might be able to uh, convince to come there. Um, I don't, it doesn't look like Allegri will be convinced in this um, case. The information I have from people close to him is that the approach was made but it didn't particularly excite him. Um, he has an offer from AS Roma at present, um, from their new owners to come back to Italian football and coach there, one that they wanted him to take on during this season, which he said, no, thank you. As we've told you in the podcast before, he's waiting for one of the biggest jobs in in world football. He wants a club um, at the very top level, which he can have the opportunity to win the Champions League with Real Madrid. Um, with whose owner, um, Florentino Perez, he has a good relationship, who he he had an invite to coach there before, which he turned down because the timing wasn't right, is one that he's earmarked. Um, But put aside that Allegri probably won't take it and that Leeds would prefer to keep Bielsa if they can convince him to stay. Um, The fact that looking at that end of the market and other Individuals that I've been told have been shortlisted by them include Maurizio Pochettino before he took the Paris Saint-Germain job, which shows you um, how long this process has been under development from Leeds. And uh, Julian Lopetegui at Sevilla, won Europa League there uh, last season, um, previously coached Real Madrid and Spain. It's, um, yeah, I think what it tells you above all else is the ambition of the owner and uh, and where he s- sees this club going over the next few seasons um, to turn them into that, you know, force they used to be in English football. They're clearly aiming high, Duncan, um, in terms of any candidate 
who may replace Bielsa. Um, I think it's interesting. There's almost a mirror image here um, of the appointment of Carlo Ancelotti at Everton and the impact he's made, not just on the football that Everton are playing and the competitiveness of the team at the top end of the table, but also the fact that Ancelotti's his reputation um, is able to attract players like uh, Jimmy Rodriguez, um, etc. And that's something which Leeds United as a club haven't been able to do, obviously, for the past 10, 15 years. Um, but obviously with a manager of that calibre would certainly be in the hunt and the market for a you know, players of that calibre in terms uh, of bringing them to uh, to Yorkshire and, uh, and making Leeds competitive against the top traditional top yeah, six. Yeah, it's going to jump starting the project in a way to, to go from Bielsa, who uh, has a good, good reputation in world football, but has never really been successful at the very top end in the biggest clubs. And um, you know, we know about his character and the difficulties he's had um, dealing with club managements to someone like Allegri, who you know is is considered a candidate for the very top jobs in football. I think you make a good point about Everton and that may well have been an inspiration in this. That We were surprised when Carlo Ancelotti went there. Uh, it seemed an odd decision. Um, for- uh, we weren't surprised, Duncan, because we reported it first. <laughs> but surprised that <laughs> surprised that, that he accepted um, a job a job sure. at that level. Yeah, yeah, it, was, I understand, uh, yeah. it, it wasn't... If you'd drawn the line between Everton and... Uh, and one of the top managers in European football, you wouldn't expect Carlo Ancelotti to say yes to it, but Everton pushed it. And as you say, they have got that advantage of um, a coach who can go to someone like James Rodriguez and say, come and join me. This is the project. And they're going to invest in the project. And the proof of that is that I'm here. They've managed to convince me to come. So you should follow me. There's good things happening here. And, you know, We've all said about Leeds United for a long time that they are one of the few clubs in English football where there is the possibility that if you manage it correctly, if you organise the club correctly, you can get them onto a par with a Tottenham Hotspur um, or a Chelsea Um because of the the historical status of the club. But more importantly, it's a one club city. There's a big support there. Um, it's essentially them and Newcastle United are, are the sort of the obvious projects if you're buying a football club um, and wanting to turn them into a, a real competitive contender at the top end of English football um, to do that. Uh, and you know, what we know about Radrazani is a very ambitious man. He's not, uh, he's not scared of taking big risks in business and making big stances to try and uh, profit down the line. And um, there are also parallels with Tottenham here. I think his, his long-term goal will be to sell the club. So he wants to rapidly build it into that asset, which he's already putting a price on up to a billion pounds, um, and then step away from it down the line once he's he's built that project in the way that Tottenham are trying to have been for a long time, building themselves into a club that Joe Lewis can sell um, and and have a ready-made project for whoever has the money to take on one of these top Premier League clubs. 
he's not quite a sleeping giant, more a big lad having a nap um, at the moment. Uh, although, of course, they're beginning to wake up um, and smell the coffee, as it were, under Radrazani. Someone who is certainly not a giant is Sergio Aguero. Um, he is out of contract at the end of the season and uh, he has been linked with a move away from Manchester City, despite, of course, being the club's all-time record goal scorer and an absolute hero and legend to the City fans. Duncan, uh, our information at the transfer window is that Barcelona have expressed a solid interest in taking Aguero uh, in the summer. However, it will be dependent given the financial investment uh, that will be required with regards to the contract and wages on what Leo Messi does. Um, It's unlikely that both will play in the same team at the camp now, although it's not impossible. Obviously, Joan Laporta uh, needs a statement signing in order to uh, honour his commitment in terms of the election to the Barca fans. But Ronald Koeman has other ideas with regards to what he wants, um, but also a player, I think, who's out of contract. Yeah, Aguero's been offered to Barcelona and they're interested in in examining it and potentially taking the player. But I think you're right to say he's not first choice. Um, you're also right to say that Messi is kind of the agenda setter. We did a pod a few weeks ago talking about how Messi will probably determine the the picture of the, the European transfer market for strikers and that Paris Saint-Germain's interest in him, Manchester City's interest in him, whether he can be convinced and, and Laporta being elected president helps the, you know, the man Messi voted for in, in the elections and, and it has has put a degree of faith in this and has started talking about new contracts with. Um, if Messi leaves, then you see things happening with Kylian Mbappe um, and Neymar. Um, if he leaves to Paris Saint-Germain, then Mbappe almost certainly doesn't stay there. From the same token, Laporta has made it public that he wants to keep Messi um, that is the priority. Getting the finances in place to satisfy him will be the priority. If Messi leaves, then there is this offer from Sergio Aguero uh, and his interest in, in coming to play in Spain again. And it's appealing because it's a big name and, and a man with an incredible record of, of scoring goals, albeit barely played any football this season. Um, so there's a, an element of risk involved in a, in a player who's had injury issues of some type throughout most of his career. Interesting is that Ronald Koeman's preference, if they're going to bring a new attacking player in, is for Memphis Depay, um, someone who tried to sign last summer. Um, they couldn't come to an agreement on on a transfer fee with Leon. Depay is now running down his contract, uh, would be available for free, um, would be cheaper from a wage perspective, um, certainly has more of a future to him um, if you get him bedded into the team. So uh, I don't think we should see Aguero as the central um, preferred strategy and attack for Barcelona at present. It's more a case of thank you for getting in touch. Yes, we're interested. 
um, let's talk about terms and and Barcelona feel like they're in a position of power in terms of making decision and concentrating their efforts on uh, on Messi to begin with. Laporta, of course, has other um, issues to resolve, Duncan, with regards to Barca's finances, and that's even before um, he begins contract talks with either uh, Aguero, Depay, or even Leo Messi himself. It's uh, one of those um, situations um, which has become increasingly common during this uh, last year of the pandemic period. Uh, You understand that uh, there is uh, a situation there with regards to um, what uh, he promised and what he can deliver. Well, as any other president of Barcelona, he has to put up financial guarantees for 15% of of the club's budget, his proposed budget for the the next year. That amounts to 126 million euros. Um, That was not expected to be a problem as, you know, we had Graham Hunter, um, Joseph Bartomeu's neighbour, as he revealed to us um, on the podcast, telling us that Laporta had secured a, a line of credit that was three times as great as any of his rivals for the pre- presidency. However, um, part of that funding was coming from Jaume Giro, who um, was going to take a part on the Barcelona board. He has now stepped away and resigned his position. Um, and has left Laporta with a problem over securing those initial finances to make the guarantee um, for that 15% of the Barcelona budget. Um, It's not a great way to start and um, it's probably not all that helpful um, given that Messi in his meetings with Laporta indicated that I was told opened the door to Laporta basically and and indicated that he'd be ready to to talk about staying, but also indicated that um, he wanted to be paid the money he was owed already. Um, Again, Graham Hunter telling us over 60 million euros um, behind on payments the club are to their uh, best player and uh, and doesn't want a a significant drop in, in salary either. So... I would expect this to be resolved, but it's it's not uh, it's not the most endearing fashion to to start uh, your second spell as president of one of the world's fo- biggest football clubs. And we should note as well, because it is our information here at the Transfer Wonder Podcast, that Usman Dembele has uh, begun negotiations to extend his contract at Camp Nou, which is interesting, Duncan, on the basis that uh, he's not exactly been a roaring success uh, since his, uh, he initially joined, uh, certainly not justifying the um, astronomical transfer fee and also um, his behaviour off the field has not exactly been exemplary either. Uh, and therefore, it's probably more a case of the club protecting the asset rather than uh, Dembele's uh, value in terms of the team. He's had, he's had a better season in terms of yeah. actually getting himself on the pitch and um, and and better performances this season. But you, know, you remember that Solskjaer um, targeted Usman Dembele as uh, as an alternative to Jadon Sancho in the summer transfer window. That deal got quite close to happening. Um, a lot of work done on the final day. One of the things 
Barcelona um, wanted Dembele to do before they would loan him to Manchester United for the season was to sign a new contract for exactly those reasons to protect the value of of the asset Um, and Dembele refused to do so because he wanted if he was going to go to Manchester which he eventually agreed to do under certain conditions he wanted the ability to demonstrate he was a top level footballer and see his contract run down um, to within a year of of termination so he would be in a position of power this summer and yes he's now in a position of power without having moved to Manchester United um, and it's it is another problem that Barcelona have to solve because they will only be able to get a limited fee for him this summer if they do decide to sell him and if they can convince him to move this summer given that he is now um, well the best part of a season closer to that freedom of contract option. Season ticket holders of the podcast will uh, no doubt remember that we were again first to break the news that Jim Solbakken, who is Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's agent, had been in touch with Manchester United with regards to extending the manager's contract, which expires a year in the summer. Uh, it's our information that that invitation from Solbakken, if that's what we can call it, maybe you could call it a a sales pitch instead, uh, has not been taken up and there has been little or no progress with regards to Solskjaer's extending uh, his stay at Old Trafford. Um, Duncan, this probably isn't a surprise on the basis that um, even, and I say even because, again, our season ticket holders know um, our views on this, Gary Neville has recently said United must win a trophy this season. Uh, they have the opportunity to do that, of course, um, albeit reduced. But the fact of the matter is, to be Manchester United manager, you're expected to win. Solskjaer is in a position where he needs to win in order to have the leverage and also um, be able to have a bargaining position with regards to a new deal. He's currently... And interestingly, one of the lowest paid managers in the Premier League, of course, that's one of the reasons uh, he came in um, on the back of, as we know, um, not so successful at stints at Malda. Uh, and so therefore, he was a kind of easy appointment in terms of his status as a club legend, as a player. Um do you see him winning a trophy and, and, and being able to follow through on that leverage that he would like in order to secure a long-term deal? Okay. If they keep Solskjaer in charge of the club with the quality of squad they've got at the moment, which is the best squad, clearly the best squad they've had in terms of depth, um, in terms of certain individual talents since Sir Alex Ferguson left the club, he will win a trophy eventually, um, just by the law of averages. And it could happen this season. There, are, there is so much individual quality on the pitch who are capable of winning games that um, you can see them winning a cup competition at some stage. I'll be fascinated to see if they don't do it this season. 
um, whether Gary Neville sticks to that line that they have to win a trophy this season. I, I suspect it will disappear or the players will be blamed or the Glazers will be blamed. I don't actually think he needs to win a trophy f- in, in terms of securing his employment. I think what he needs to do is qualify for the Champions League and that's been very clear um, from the uh, Glazers. The, the Arsene Wenger trophy. <laughs> yes, the, the top four trophy. And you know, look, he's, he is still on course to finish second they're they're a point above Leicester City uh, six point gap on on Chelsea they're looking after the victory over West Ham um, at the weekend they're looking comfortable to finish in the top four and qualify for the Champions League again now that that is the important thing for the Glazers it's the revenue that comes um, from being in the Champions League massive additional TV cash that that comes to them, that's their target. They're not their priority is not silverware. Their priority is not glory. The priority is to continue being able to take money out of the club, to keep running it on a basis where they are profitable and they're taking you know tens of millions each year in dividends and directors fees. Um, can sell off some of their shares as one of them has uh, decided to put on the market about $100 million worth of of shares recently and wait until the European Super League comes along or the rights to market um, television um, and direct consumer television go to the clubs um, direct to their supporters. We've talked about this on the podcast before. It's no coincidence that that was part of the, the proposal that Manchester United were involved in in terms of reforming the Premier League. It's no coincidence it's part of the the project for the European Super League. Once Manchester United have access to sell direct to consumer, they increase their their revenues from the broadcast broadcast side massively. And you'll see what a lot of that Richard Arnold talk about um, social media presence and and building market in China is about. That I think it is aimed for that down the line moment when they uh, move away from the rest of the league in terms of sharing broadcast revenues, focus more of it direct to their own supporters, massively increase the revenues, massively increase the value of the club and can, should they choose to do so, sell it down the line for a, an even more substantial profit on the money um, they bought it for. Remember, borrowed money, not their, not their own money. Solskjaer suits that project because they can kind of bumble along in this um, stage of not being competitive for the title, not being competitive for the Champions League. Um, a lot of the fans saying, oh, we see progress. Uh, we like that young players are coming in. We like the focus on on domestic talent. Um, he's a club legend, so we will, we will give him more leeway than we will for other managers. He's inexpensive. So they don't have to pay a lot in salary. He does not criticize them. He used to criticize them when he wasn't manager, but he doesn't criticize them when he is manager. It's an easy ride for the Glazers as they look for the long-term profitability of the club. Um, Put this into that question about a new contract for Solskjaer. Uh, Yeah, I think you're right to point out that his leverage is limited. If, If you're... Manchester United, if you're the Glazers and you have Jim Saul back and coming to you saying, my man deserves a new contract, but you've got him tied down for another year on a fixed salary. 
what exactly have you got to lose by waiting until the end of the next season, potentially, to extend the contract? None, none of Manchester United rivals are going to go and make Solskjaer an offer um, to manage them. He's clearly not better than the, the coaches they've got. He probably wouldn't take it anyway because he has this, you know, admirable dedication to the club. He does love the club. He has a history with the club. He's not particularly high paid at the present. And, you know, you have the, the, the same kind of analysis goes to a pay rise. So I think it's also going to be quite difficult for Selbacken to secure him a substantial pay rise because he doesn't really have the leverage of being able to say, I'm going to a Champions League rival or I'm going to another Premier League club if you don't pay me. Um, really, they can they can hang on to him at on the contractual terms uh, that they have at present and, or minor changes to them for, for as long as they like, in, in my view. It'd be, it would be a surprise if they were to extend for a long period of time without a, a break clause in their favour where they gave him a big pay rise. I wonder if he's... Um doing a Paul Pogba and running down his contract so that he can uh, more easily join Real Madrid or Barcelona or Bayern Munich. Um, apart from that, Duncan, should Solskjaer be worried or encouraged um, by the appointment of, uh, obviously, the two new um, recruitment uh, stroke uh, technical directors in John Murta and Darren Fletcher in the sense that we know that he has identified striker. four positions. Um, and by that, I mean a number nine striker, someone who can play at the top of the team with uh, uh, three attacking midfielders behind it. And also a defensive midfielder, a centre-back to partner Har Maguire, and also a backup right back to Aaron Wan-Bissaka. Now, obviously he's had an input on... You know, these being the positions he needs to strengthen. But it's possibly the case that with more people involved now in the process of recruitment, that Solskjaer, instead of having more influence, will have less. And therefore, his position as head coach um, seems slightly less secure. Um, whereas, of course, if he was the only one who was deciding... Uh, you know, where they should strengthen, then he might feel uh, like, uh, you know, he might get the extension to his contract that he desires. I, I don't think so. I think he, he, this is essentially a vote of confidence. As we talked about on the on the podcast when we examined John Murtaugh and, and Darren Fletcher's um appointment as football director and technical director it's it's a vote of confidence in the cultural reboot and the cultural reboot is built um around Solskjaer um you know we've talked in the podcast before about this this wasn't a strategy that was devised by the club as a way to solve the problems they got themselves into post David Moyes post Louis van Gaal post Jose Mourinho um it was uh, we have put Solskjaer in charge. He's had a good, very good run of games initially. We can give him a contract and we can build a story around the way we're working. Um, we said in the podcast last week that the, the recruitment process is to be driven by Solskjaer. So he will identify those positions and, and the, the type of player, um, the characteristics of the player. Then that will go 
to Murto and uh, Darren Fletcher and go through their huge um, rank of scouts and their analysis team to provide a list of candidates um, to Solskjaer. Um, Solskjaer will have a veto over any of those candidates, so he has the absolute power to say, I don't want to sign a particular player. The other people in the, the process can veto Solskjaer's um, choices, but essentially Solskjaer's dri- driving it and the others are there to to facilitate it. Um, the limitation comes on how much money the Glazers will give him to work in the market. You could argue that um, it's a it's a drawback for him in the sense that had a powerful sports director ca- come in, that powerful sports director might have been able to say, look, I need more radical changes. I need more backing in the market. And had the sports director been on board with, with Solskjaer's proposals, then maybe between them they'd have the leverage to get better signings. But then I think if you have that that top sports director coming in and they had the opportunity to hire the best in the business, uh, which they, they passed on. Um, it's unlikely that for any sustainable length of time that the sports director would think that having Solskjaer as, as manager was the best use of club resources. So I think this is, he's in a strong position. Um, those targets, uh, the, you also have the goalkeeper they're looking at and the possibility of of um, trying to move David De Gea out and uh, uh, in discussions with Gianluigi Donnarumma about coming as a free agent. Um, looking at a striker, obviously Solskjaer's um, preferred candidate for that is Erling Haaland. Um, and there is a kind of flow towards that because Cavani is on a very expensive salary. So um, retaining him is not the cheapest of options. Uh, a, a central midfielder. I'm told they're looking for a player who can play as a, as a number six, as a holding midfielder, or as a number eight. Um, do both positions to give them more options in midfield. Back up right back and um, another centre back. Ironically, um, recruiting a, a right back and centre back, the two positions that Solskjaer was given vast amounts of money, spending record transfer fees on in his first full summer as a manager, um, causing a problem that they, they are now trying to solve by signing another centre-back in Harry Maguire, which makes you ask the question about how sensible is this recruitment system with Solskjaer at the head of it, given that the, the biggest spend he has made um, on a player has been an unsuccessful one. You have to balance that off against the ones that have been good. Bruno Fernandes, the obvious example, but um, it's not all uh, the roses that it, it's sometimes depicted to be in terms of his decisions uh, I wonder if they should employ the Carlos Tevez um, plan and sign Sergio Aguero Duncan in reverse. <laughs> when, Aguero, <laughs> when Tevez went to Manchester City... Um, It's yeah, it's not it's not a terrible idea. Remember, Josie Mourinho did try and uh, uh, have a go for Sergio Aguero during the period in which he knew that uh, Guardiola wasn't happy with Aguero and Guardiola wanted to change lead striker and and Manchester City actually went to Guardiola and said, "Look, we, you know we back you in the market, and we know we, we give you what you want, but Aguero is." 
part of this club's identity. Please, please, please work harder with them. Um, so Interesting. It, it's been well, tried before by Manchester pod, United. I promised Man. you a hat trick of United's, albeit maybe they're not United uh, in terms of their relationships. And we bring you news now of the possibility. Uh, which has been talked about of the departure of Newcastle United's manager, Steve Bruce, himself a Manchester United legend, of course, and the possibility of him being replaced should they lose to Brighton Hove Albion at the Amex Stadium this coming weekend. Chris Wilder, who was, uh, well, let's say he departed Sheffield United, um, after long-running um, and antagonistic relationship with the club's hierarchy over transfers and investment, uh, who is still waiting for his lawyers to agree a compensation package, we understand is in the running to replace Steve Bruce, something which Sheffield United are aware of and therefore are stalling on the compensation package on the basis that, of course, that would uh, depreciate uh, if he were to take another high-paid job uh, immediately after leaving Bramall Lane. Um, I suppose, Duncan, that Wilder's departure, given Sheffield United's position, wasn't exactly a shock. But does is he the photo fit of Newcastle United and Mike Ashley? Actually, apart from Rafa Benitez, does seem to like an old school English head coach in charge of his club. Um, there's obviously been quite a long line of them uh, under Ashley's reign as owner. Uh, but the international break's coming up. And traditionally, of course, that tends to be the graveyard of certain managers, especially those who are facing relegation. And of course, Newcastle are right down there in the battle, along with Brighton uh, and also Sheffield United, West Brom as well. Um, Fulham, who had a little bit of a setback, but seemed to have momentum in an upward direction. So would Wilder be a good fit to Newcastle United? Um Certainly a good fit for Mike Ashley, that's what you you could say. I think you're right to say that it fits a pattern of appointments from Mike Ashley. Um, he would be relatively inexpensive. Um, he knows um, how to handle a club in the championship should Newcastle go down, and that might also be part of Ashley's thoughts um, to have someone ready to to get them promoted again if it, if it goes badly this season. Um, did a phenomenally good job for much of his time at Sheffield United and then had, I think, historically the worst start to Premier League season ever this year. And I think part of that is down to clubs knowing um, the quite unusual tactical system that he he deployed to catch teams out um, last season and and working ways around it, uh, it would certainly be interesting to see as a test of his his coaching credentials because he got built up to a level where he was being linked to some of the the top jobs in in English football last season to see how he would do with with Newcastle United how quickly he can have an impact and. Um, what kind of tactical system he puts in place, um, whether he can come up with something novel that that uh, that pushes them higher up the league than you'd expect them to be for the quality of their players. 
Well, anyone who's been down the big market on a Saturday night will know that it's always wilder in Newcastle. So uh, <laughs> we shall see um, what happens with that one. Um, Frank Lampard, of course, who is out of a job, uh, has also been uh, mentioned with regards to the possibility, although it's our understanding, that he is reluctant to move to the northeast, and with the birth of his second child with his wife, Christine Bleakley, uh, it's unlikely that he will take a job before this coming summer. It is, of course, the first Transfer Window podcast of the week, which, of course, as well, means it's hero and villain time. And I'm pleased to say that Duncan, who has more than one ante happening in his house right now, is going to give us an anti-hero. Yeah, anti-hero because I, I can't look is that, beyond... Is that the name of your anti, anti-hero? <laughs> anti-heroine. <laughs> um, I, I can't look beyond uh, Eric Lamella um, for given the goal he scored uh, at the weekend against Arsenal. Um, a serious candidate for goal of the season. One of those ones where you, you think, what has he done there? Um, certainly some of his teammates did and uh, and the opposition did uh, but then um, getting sent off in the same fixture having only come on as a substitute during the first half and uh, well you'd say leaving his team at a disadvantage although they actually played the best football of, of the game um, of, or certainly of their game uh, in the period after he'd been sent off um, when they actually went on the attack and I think um Maybe an element of the villain this week would be Josie Mourinho for going into that game, um, having turned around Tottenham by going on the front foot and pressing the opposition and playing um, as many of his attacking players as possible and getting good returns from it and then putting out a team which really needed to play that way again. You, You can't really ask well, you can ask Aris Bale to work as a as an auxiliary defender, but he doesn't like doing it and doesn't do much of it, and, you, and it leaves you exposed, as we saw. Um, and ending up, albeit with a ridiculous refereeing decision and a terrible bit of a VAR uh, non-intervention, um, ultimately costing them the game. But I think there was a, a fair contribution from Mourinho's tactics in that match to uh, the end of what was a good run for Tottenham. I'm going to disagree here, Duncan, Um, not, you know, intentionally, but I I have a a bugbear about professional footballers who can't kick with both feet. And the only reason footballers do a Rabona is because they have got no alternative foot to score with. So um, as much as there is to admire about Lamella's goal, um, Fact of the matter is, if he could kick with his right foot, then he wouldn't have to have done the Rabona and uh, he'd probably be a much better player than he is. So um, as someone who had it drilled into him uh, from a very early age, that you must practice with both feet, then um, uh, I would say he's a villain. But then you've said anti-hero, which is halfway there. So that's fair enough. I I think... If he kicks with his right foot there, it takes away the element of surprise and, and it doesn't go in the net. So give the man credit. No, I'm not going to. Um, Michael <laughs> Oliver is my villain for exactly what you said, Duncan. The award of the penalty, uh, 
when uh, the challenge of Davidson Sanchez on Alexandra Lacazette uh, gave the penalty to Arsenal. Um, reason being, uh, A, it was never a penalty and wouldn't be. Um, Lacazette had already sliced the ball out of play, so there was no stopping a goal-scoring opportunity. And the coming together of both players made it a 50-50 with regards to the challenge itself. Um, and also, for those who didn't hear Jose Mourinho speak about it, the fact that Michael Oliver, during his time refereeing a Mourinho team, obviously in the Premier League, um, has given a penalty against a Mourinho team on average, once every 3.5 games, which if you look at the statistics for other managers, is really quite unbelievable and remarkable. Um, Jose said maybe Michael Oliver was tired or maybe it was something else. We don't know, but he is apparently England's best referee and, of course, on the FIFA and UEFA list. So... Um, as far as PGMOL are concerned, they should have a look at that. And of course, Duncan, your friend Dermot Gallagher uh, was defending him and saying it definitely was a penalty. Um, sensational. Well, on, on Premier League TV, he actually struggled to defend him, um, especially after Alexander Lacazette himself had said we were lucky to get a penalty in that incident and I was trying to defend the process and the, the fact that Michael Oliver had gone on to the VAR as soon as he um, whistled for the penalty to explain his thinking and uh, Gallagher's argument was because he had explained his thinking the VAR couldn't ask him to to look at the screen which is you know a classic um, English refereeing fraternity let's try and find an excuse for not doing what we said should be done which is if there's doubt ask the referee to look at it himself on screen um, like the, the the nature of that foul um, yeah technically you can say it is, it is a foul because he made contact with, with the player in the box. But had Lacazette got his shot off, Sanchez would have had a very good chance of blocking um, the ball with his feet. That's what he was trying to do. And if he blocks Lacazette's shot with his feet and then catches Lacazette, do we expect a penalty to be given? I don't, I don't think professional footballers do. I don't think supporters do. Um, therefore... It's a bizarre decision to to take to um, to give a foul in, in those circumstances, um, and you're you're opening up uh, in a game which is already giving far too many penalties um, for marginal contact in the box and for for handball um, because of rewrite of the rules. If you if you start saying if a defender makes any contact with an opponent after challenging for a ball, regardless of whether he gets it or not, we're going to give a penalty. Um, you'll see England's number one referee, I think, being taken away from from a Champions League and, and European else in that box, uh, championship matches pretty quickly. <laughs> We'd like to take this opportunity, Duncan and I, and all of our wonderful contributors as well, to say thank you to all of you uh, for the fact that we have now exceeded quite comfortably 3 million listens, quite a feat as it puts us in the top 1% 
of global podcasts. That is amazing. And as I said, uh, we owe it to you. You're our community. You are the people who we are here to give information to and entertain. And if you like what you have heard today, and of course, all of the time, then please go on to iTunes, give us a five-star review. If you're listening uh, on YouTube channel, then please turn on your notifications and you'll hear or see when the next podcast drops. Please engage with us on social media. Uh, we are at Transfer Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And Duncan is at Duncan Castles. I'm at Garbo SJ. This has been your first Transfer Window podcast of the week. We'll be back later in the week, of course. Until then, stay safe, be well, and thanks for listening. Hey.